Welcome to This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Now is your chance to get caught up in all that's happening in technology around Akron and the rest of the world. Now here's your host, Gene Destro. This week, as millions of kids nationwide start a new school year, we're talking to education expert and author Richard Kulata about his new book, Digital for Good, Raising Kids to Thrive in an Online World. I started my career as a teacher. I was a high school teacher and then had an opportunity to work in the U.S. Senate on education policy and was appointed by President Obama to lead the Office of Educational Technology for the U.S. Department of Education. I now run an organization called ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education, and we look at how to help make sure we're using technology in effective ways. Honestly, though, probably the most qualification that I have uh, is I'm a parent of four children who are tech users, just like I think all children these days, and that's really where a lot of my both inspiration and recognizing of some of the pain points that parents are facing comes from. Well, talk to me about some of those pain points. Obviously, people have been talking about kids getting too much screen time during the pandemic or not being able to thrive when they're doing their schoolwork because they're online and not in person, bullying, that kind of thing. I wonder if just those are your concerns or more, and if you could kind of expand on them. There are a lot of pressures and stresses I think that families are feeling when it comes to technology use. Certainly one is how much time is appropriate, what's appropriate, uh, and then there's the risks, right? Of bullying, of misinformation, of time wasted, right? There's, there's lots of risks and concerns that come along with it. Unfortunately, some of the approaches that we try to take in, you know, well-intentioned as parents to try to help address some of those issues actually can make them worse. So screen time is an interesting example of that. I think we often like the idea that there's this prescribed number, and if we can just say, you know, an hour a day or something like that, then our kids will be healthy. Unfortunately, that sets up some real challenges down the road because it teaches kids that all screen time is created equal. Whatever you do, whether it's playing a mindless game for an hour or doing something much more productive, reading a book or engaging with a family member or, or learning something new, it, it's all the same value. It just starts in an hour and ends in an hour. And so one of the really important skills that we work with to, to help teach parents, and I include it in my book, is the idea of shifting away from screen time to thinking about how we help our kids develop balance. And balance, you know, just like I often compare this to, to how we eat, right? We train our kids to eat. We don't have eat time, you know, where you're like, we're going to eat for an hour. It doesn't matter what you eat. You can eat any garbage you want for an hour. But when the hour's over, you stop eating. No, we teach that there are some foods that we should eat more of because they have more value. And we teach that we should stop eating when we're full, when we've had enough, not eat as much as we possibly can until the timer goes off. That's the same idea that we should be applying to our digital culture, our digital world and our family, that we should be doing some activities for a significant amount of time because they bring us great value, others probably very little, and that we should learn that when one activity is taking too much of our time, 
we need to learn to move on to something else, regardless of how long we've been doing it. And that sounds really great to me. I'm wondering, though, if you could address the challenges that parents have, let's say if they're working from home and they're also trying to supervise their children who are at home trying to learn online. A lot of children are going back to school in person, but some are not. So how do parents walk that fine line between allowing their children to get the kind of screen time they need and then having to be spending time on the screen at the same time when they're working? Right. I think one of the big keys, and as I was doing research on my book, Digital for Good, it's something that I that came up over and over again, was it's really important to involve kids, no matter what the age is of the kids, involve them in coming up with what your family's digital culture is going to be. So if it feels like this is a, a, a limit, an idea that parents are imposing on their kids, right? Here are the rules, here's what you'll do, you have no say in it, you just follow my rules, it's going to take a lot more monitoring and hovering, and it's not healthy. And so what we want to do is we want to involve the kids in the process of deciding what's reasonable. What are reasonable activities to do? How much of your time is reasonable to spend on certain digital activities? Let's talk that through. Let's come up with, and I recommend, again, in the book, I recommend that we create a digital use agreement. So, so a device use agreement is a contract. It's actually a written contract between parents and kids that we both together come up with that says, here's what it looks like to be a good member of our digital family. And then when there's buy-in from the kids, it becomes much easier for parents to enforce. Now, that doesn't mean, believe me, (laughs) for kids, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden it's just perfect. We just sign this one piece of paper and all of a sudden, you know, uh, there's no no, uh, conflict. But it helps set the conditions so that over time it doesn't have to feel like so much of a fight because there's buy-in right from the beginning that this is something we're doing together. We're agreeing together that some types of technology use are better than others, and that's what we're going to prioritize in our family. What kind of advice can you give parents who are concerned about things that are not so positive, bullying, misinformation, disinformation, and online predators? Cyberbullying is real. It's a real thing. As I was doing research for the book, we looked at the amount of kids who had witnessed some form of of cyberbullying or experienced it. It's a a very large percentage. Interestingly enough, I'll, I'll say two things. The first is it's important for parents to watch for the signs. Uh, of cyberbullying. And, and, and again, I in, in the book, I share about 10 or 15 signs that you can look for. A couple examples of those. Um, being very secretive about what's happening on a device. If a parent's walking by and immediately, anytime a parent walks by, the kid just wants to hide their phone or hide their device, that's a sign that probably something isn't very healthy. Changes in patterns and sleep patterns or in not wanting to go participate at an activity or at school, even though in the past, Maybe they did. Those are all flagged that there may be something going on, and parents should talk more closely with their kids. But here's a bit that I want to share. I just want to share some some good news in in all of this, and that is that when people intervene, right, when other kids intervene when they witness cyberbullying, it is actually very effective at making it stop. And so one of the things that we need to do a much better job of as we prepare our kids to thrive in the digital world is not just say, how do you protect yourself? How do you, you know, it's almost a very selfish narrative that we do. You know, watch yourself, watch your back. One of the things that we need to be doing is saying, how can you create safe spaces for others 
What do you do? And so, again, when looking at some of the research for the book, we saw that 90% of kids that witness cyberbullying don't do anything about it. And these aren't bad kids. It's just that we've never practiced. We've never talked to them about what do you do when you see somebody that's doing something that is mean to somebody else. And when they do something, even as simple as just say, hey, don't talk about my friend that way, or hey, we don't see things like that here, as simple as that, it often will just completely stop the bullying. So flipping from anti-cyberbullying, this anti-cyberbullying mentality that we have, we need to flip it to talking about being good cyber friends. And if we can make that shift from being so negative to actually saying, here's what to do to make our digital spaces safer, a lot of the cyberbullying issues that we see will actually go away. So let's talk about opportunities then for creating a really positive digital environment for your children and helping them thrive online. Mm-hmm. I've spent years studying how learning works, how learning happens, and there's a really important principle that I just want to share. If there's nothing else that you remember from this conversation, remember this. In order to change behavior, anybody's behavior as we're learning, you have to practice, right? That's that's probably not a concept that's going to sound too surprising. Our kids learn to play the piano, right? When you play the piano, you have to practice over and over again in order to get the notes right. You can't practice not doing something. Right, so, so if our kids, if we said, okay, it's time to learn piano, and the way we're going to teach you piano is we're going to tell you all of the notes not to play. Oh, it doesn't work that way. You, you, we say, here are the notes to play, here's how to play, and then we practice over and over again. The digital world that we live in, it's complex. The skills required to be a healthy, well-balanced young person growing up or, or even older person like, you know, like, like me, these are complex skills, and they have to be practiced. And so instead of saying, just like the piano, instead of saying, here's all the things not to do, right? Uh, share your password. Don't be mean online. Don't share a picture that you don't want down the road. Don't waste your time and all that stuff. We need to be able to say, here's what to do. So simply flipping from the list of don'ts approach to the list of do's approach can be really powerful in helping young people learn to thrive. Just as one quick example, I was reviewing at school. I was working with a school district, and they had an agreement for their students to sign in order to access their, their network. And I said, hey, can I see it? And I said, you know, sure. And it was a list of 35 things not to do on their network. <laughs> I don't know if I could even think of 35 things not to do with technology. Not a single thing they wanted them to do with it. And so if we can just flip that around and start to articulate what we want kids to do, what we want kids to be in virtual spaces, it can be very powerful in creating a healthier digital culture. Okay, so let's talk about some examples of that. I can think of things you shouldn't do, like don't talk to strangers online about private things. Don't give out your password. Don't engage in cyberbullying. Those are some examples of what not to do. Give me some concrete examples of what to do then. Oh, absolutely. So this is the best part. This is where it gets fun, is talking about the, the, the things that we want kids to do in, in virtual spaces. So one of the things that I articulate with our family is help us capture family moments. Use your devices. They all have cameras on them. Part of the deal is you need to help when we're on family trips or when we get birthdays and parents are busy. Help us capture family moments. Help write down funny things that your brothers and sisters say so that you know we can have memories of, of these things down the road. That's one example. There are lots of examples of the ways that our kids can use technology to also help make the world a better place around them. So helping to share if, if they're you know, older kids, helping to share on social media 
about causes that they are passionate about. Using sites like JustServe.org, if, if people are familiar with that, shows you know in, in the 10-mile radius where are there opportunities to, to volunteer. Those are the types of ways to use technology to engage in our communities and in our families. But also, one of the things that we need to be articulating is, is again, not how to, how to not get misinformation. Like that's, that's actually not very helpful. What is more helpful is to say, how can you distinguish true and, and less true or less useful information online? What to look for? Do we look for who wrote it? Do we, one of the questions I love to ask is, uh, when, when trying to teach this concept of finding accurate information, is who's paying for it? A lot of times, kids don't recognize, parents even, who's paying for information that we get online. Is it paid for by advertising? Is it paid for by a foundation? Is it paid for because they're trying to sell a product? Just being able to learn those skills make us much savvier finding useful and accurate information in virtual spaces. That brings up the issue of influencers, because you were like, who's paying mm-hmm. for it? And, and I think one of the reasons that influencers with younger people on, on social media is so effective is because essentially they actually are hiding that it's getting paid for by somebody else. That's such a good point. And one of the things that, uh, again, is really fascinating is just to start to have that conversation with your kids and your family about who is paying for the things that we see online. And are there cases where we can't tell, right? I think there are skills that we learned growing up. You know, when I, when I was growing up, I remember teachers saying, if it's in print, it has to be true, right? Or, or other things, things like that. We used indicators to be able to help us tell if information was useful or not. And now those indicators, they're different. And one of them is, is who's paying for something. The other is, when was it published, right? There's an expiration date on useful information in virtual spaces. And if there's something that was a five, six-year-old post uh, that's being used you know, now, maybe it's, it's expired. So those types of questions, just becoming much more savvy about what information is useful. And, and if you notice, I, I'm not talking about fake news, right? We talk about fake news, and yes, of course, there is some blatantly fake news, but most of the challenges that we deal with are not about stuff that is blatantly fake. It's about information that is being used out of context. So uh, an advertisement, for example, a paid placement, a paid advertisement that we're, we're using not realizing that it is an advertisement, or a piece that was written, an opinion piece, which is totally legit to have opinion pieces, but then using an opinion piece as if it were, you know, research-based. That's the more nuance that we have to get into. It's not so easy as black and white, you know, true versus fake. It's this whole wide range of intent behind the information that is in a virtual space. And that's the skill that we have to get our kids really good at so they're not being taken advantage of in a virtual world. It sounds like that could be a great topic or a, a great course that could be taught in a school and that maybe a teacher might be more qualified to research all that information and, and kind of teach that information and keep up with the kids on it rather than just their parents. I say something that I feel very strongly with in my book and what I say is that digital citizenship or digital well-being, right, is a team sport. And this is critical. It is something that teachers and schools have to be part of. Parents and families have to be part of. Government leaders, our elected officials, have a a key role in this. And the people that build and develop the platforms that we use, the online tools that we use, 
all have a role in making sure our young people are growing up to thrive in a, in a virtual world. So, so yes, absolutely. Is this a responsibility of parents to talk about? A hundred percent, right? Is it a responsibility of teachers to help share examples and teach how to recognize useful information and how to use technology to solve tough problems? Absolutely. The important part, I think, is that we are talking about and coordinating these efforts across the different members of the team. So parents, it's very important that they know and understand what their school's device you know, agreements are. What are, the, what are the norms that the school expects? And if they have the, a norm and it, you know, all it is is a list of don'ts and not a single thing that they want our kids to be doing with the technology, that's a problem. And that might be a time to say, hey, can we, can we talk about updating this? On the flip side, for teachers, if they're teaching some skills that can be useful to help kids use technology for learning, use technology for solving tough problems, it's very important that they share those with parents so that the parents can reinforce those ideas uh, at home. And that's where we, and, and by the way, all of us together need to be very clear with the developers of our digital platforms when there are new features that we need to help our kids be healthy. But look, one real quick example of that is the features that have now finally been added to our digital video tools like YouTube, Netflix, Disney Plus to turn off autoplay. Autoplay is one of the worst features ever for kids because it means that instead of choosing what video to watch next, some algorithm that is made by a, you know, a computer developer somewhere, not a parent, not a teacher, is choosing the next thing for the kids to watch. That is incredibly dangerous. And so now all of the tools, the video tools, have built in an ability to turn off autoplay. We've still got to do it as parents. We've got to go in and do that. But that's the sort of thing that happens when parents and teachers together have a unified voice in asking for feature changes from our tech providers. That's excellent. So is there anything you'd like to add just to kind of wrap things up that maybe I forgot to ask? Let me just share two really quick tips that, that I share that I found are very helpful for helping parents, again, create a, a nice, uh, healthy digital culture in their family. One of them is to, in the, in the overarching principle here for, uh, for both of these, is we should be teaching our kids to use tech on their own terms. Use technology when they want to for their purposes, not because they're being sucked into it by a tool or an app that's been designed to, to try to capture more of their attention than it deserves. So, so two tips that are really helpful. One, turn off device notifications. A lot of parents don't realize you can go into any device, whether it's a, you know, an Android phone, an iPhone, an, an iPad, whatever, whatever the device is, and simply turn off all of the notifications. Maybe you, you leave on the notification for text messages, for communication, but, but if they're apps or, or games or social media, it doesn't mean that our kids can't go and use them but they should use them when they want to, not because there's an alert that they're getting every 30 seconds from the app. So one simple thing, turn off those notifications. The second thing is create a designated place in your home where devices can live overnight. As I was doing research for the book Digital for Good, I was shocked at how many kids sleep with their devices in their beds. And there's huge problems. I looked at a, a bunch of, of studies on, on sleep and sleep deprivation that is being caused by alerts coming all through the night, waking kids up, checking on their devices. And so simply saying, here's a place in our house 
where devices live. When you go to bed, you plug them in here, and we can get them again in the morning, but they don't belong in our beds at night. Buy an alarm clock. Alarm clocks are cheap. They work. <laughs> That's the way your kids should get up, not because their phone is right next to them. Those are a couple tips that I found can be really helpful in trying to create balance in our digital culture with our families. That was International Society for Technology and Education CEO Richard Culotta talking about his new book, Digital for Good, Raising Kids to Thrive in an Online World. And that's it for now. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. That was This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Tune in next week for more tech news on 93.5-1590-WAKR and WAKR.net. <laughs>